My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. The past year has destroyed everyone's sense of time. So I won't blame you if you haven't realized this just yet. But less than a month from now, a second year of post-secondary graduates will leave school behind and enter a workforce that is mostly not hiring, definitely not meeting in person, a workforce that has any number of businesses just trying to survive the end of this pandemic and not really so concerned with recruiting their next generation. And besides, even if many of these businesses were recruiting, what do these students have that can help them stand out? Mentorships have been virtual at best, non-existent at worst. Extracurricular activities? <laughs> I don't know if you listened to our episode about life on campus during a pandemic, but it was basically a long prison metaphor. So grades. Grades is what these kids have. Grades handed out virtually by many professors who have never met their students face to face, who have never formed a relationship with them, and don't know, frankly, whether or not to recommend them in their industry. So it's bleak if you're graduating this year. What do the kids need as they enter the workforce? Well, they need jobs, a lot of jobs, a chance to impress doing whatever when there are so few jobs and so much economic distress going around. Well, there is actually a blueprint for that. We have done it before, and it could benefit all of us if it's done right. The question is, can we afford it or can we afford not to do it? And the answer will determine these kids' futures. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Kareem Bardizi is the executive director and a co-founder of the Ryerson Leadership Lab. He's also worked as a journalist and, importantly, for our conversation as a policymaker in government. Hello, Kareem. Good day, Jordan. I want to ask you, before we get into numbers and, and an op-ed you wrote that puts forward a really interesting suggestion and, and all of that, uh, just as somebody who works closely with them, what is the atmosphere around students who are graduating from post-secondary education, whether that's uh, last spring in the middle of this pandemic or this spring as we're still kind of in the middle of it? Uh, they're concerned. They're trepidatious. I think it's always a pivot point in a young person's life, generally young people, when they're uh, leaving the uh, safety or the world they know of a structured uh, university or college education and going into a more unknown space. Uh, but it's more unknown for more of the students I'm dealing with, for sure. Uh, a lot of the students uh, I would have had in previous years would have had a sense of what their summer job was or maybe even their first professional career uh, job at this point in, in, in mid-March, and very few of them have that uh, have that knowledge right now. 
What about among the faculty? Because again, you know, I, I went to Ryerson. I know um, the process of leaving uh, school for the real world. You're relying a lot on on faculty members and uh, people in the department to kind of make you those connections that could lead to that summer job that could turn into a career. And, you know, what kinds of opportunities are the faculty seeing out there for these kids? Absolutely. Um, in some cases, they're seeing fewer uh, opportunities. In some cases, in other cases, they might have an awareness of the opportunity, but they were never able to make that strong connection uh, between the student and that opportunity. Um we know from some of the statistics that uh, co-op placements, which are really important, uh, or other work-integrated learning placements are truly important to facilitate those connections between students and future jobs, often supported by faculty members. We know that those opportunities uh, are have been reduced during the pandemic. We know even that student connections to profs and other people who support them uh, in their job search generally is down. They're not able to have the in-person experience. They're not even they're not able to have those free-flowing conversations, which might reveal, oh, actually, I'm really interested in this job. I thought I, I'm in this degree or in this major, but what I really want to do is this. And in this two-dimensional world, uh, those kinds of free-flowing conversations are less likely to happen. I, ha I have them with my students in, in office hours, um, but not all professors are able to have them to the same extent. You mentioned statistics there. Do we have any idea of the scale of recent graduates who have been uh, shut out or prevented or just haven't been able to make that connection to find a job? Yeah, so we know that according to survey evidence anyway, in Ontario, 85% of Ontario students say the pandemic has had negative impact on their ability to participate in extracurricular activities, which makes sense. Extracurricular activities like clubs and sports, uh, the social there's a social aspect. You might get together to pitch a pitch a case in a case competition. Uh, you might hear from an interesting guest speaker. You might have your own club elections uh, and parties. Almost none of those have been able to happen in the usual way. And those extracurricular activities, we know, are the things that differentiate students uh, from each other uh, on their CVs. Otherwise, uh, what do they have to differentiate themselves? Well, they have their marks uh, and they might have their job experience. But two of those three things, the extracurriculars and the job experience, have already been impacted. So the only place they have to where they can kind of control something and show themselves um, are, are their marks. On the other hand, we know that employers, some employers are interested in marks. But a lot more employers are interested in other other measures. Can this person work well on a team? Is this person a good writer? Uh, does this person have the technical knowledge on this particular thing that I'm going to need in my job? All those statistics show that um, our young people are especially disadvantaged. And I would say what's concerning to me is they don't have an ability to show what they can do in relation to their peers mm. with whom they're competing for what are right now scarce jobs. What do you tell them um, when they talk to you in office hours about how they can uh, differentiate themselves when they enter the job market? And also, just what do you tell them about the job market? Because I imagine uh, extracurriculars or no, that's not super positive either right now. Absolutely. And one of the things, uh, one of the messages I try to send to them, uh, in particular through the class that I teach uh, with them at the Faculty of Arts, which is called Making the Future, which is a, a class about the public policy responses to the pandemic and which in, helped inspired the uh, the piece that I wrote recently in the Toronto Star that we're talking a bit about here, is that one of the things that they need is agency. They need to know that the input that they're making will have some output or some response. What does that look like right now? It may not mean um, applying for a job and getting the job, but it might mean advocating or activating around some of these issues, being in touch with policymakers. Uh, during the pandemic, 
getting engaged on the issues, whether it's homelessness, whether it's on the issue of youth jobs, whether it's on the issue of mental health, and actually engaging their political leaders, which might find sound a little far from uh, the job market, mm. but bear with me for a moment. Uh, uh, it actually is a way to practice those skills, and it's a way to, to gain some control over your life, even if you don't get the response you want, because you're you're asserting you with others the that desire to have a better a better future, and some of that is going to involve the job market. Yes, some of this actually can lead to a job. So the idea that students aren't going to necessarily slot into existing jobs, but through their active advocacy, through their activation around issues, in my case, um, especially interested in public policy issues, they can actually develop those skills and knowledge that make them attractive candidates for for jobs. We've also, through the Ryerson Leadership Lab, had a partnership with a group called Future Majority. And so in my case, in my class, I'm able to offer uh, students um, supported by uh, federal government funding uh, an opportunity to have a work integrated learning experience with Future Majority, which is a, a young person's civic engagement group. And they have paid placements for six weeks. It's not everything, um, but there's an opportunity there for, for those students who are interested in that work. For other students who are pretty sure where they want to go, I, I asked them, you might be slotting into a job as it's understood right now. If you're in a real estate management course uh, or a hospitality course, you're learning how that industry is working pre-pandemic, and maybe you're learning a bit about how it needs to change. The great thing about being on the, learning about how it needs to change is a lot of people, including the people in authority positions, a lot of the employers themselves, they don't have the answers either. Right. And so what I, what I say to students who are in professions or in programs that, are, that seem to have a path, but where that path is now a bit more cloudy is you can be part of the solution. Uh, you can go into these uh, uh, interviews and say, I think we're going to have to reimagine some of this work. We're going to have to imagine, reimagine some of the sector. We're going to have to reimagine some of this uh, business. So that's, a, that's a, another set of messages I have for a different group of students. And then there's another. There's a third group of students who luckily are in professions or in places where there is going to be job demand. We know that the health professions have uh, considerable uh, demand. We know that education and social work and the helping professions, the caring professions, are going to be more in demand. They're more in demand now, and they're going to continue to be after the pandemic, or in growth sectors like uh, green energy. And so, so to them, I just uh, try to encourage them and say, uh, keep going, uh, learn as much as possible, <laughs> uh, which is hard right now, and. Um, and those opportunities uh, hopefully will come. But the, the thing I, I the thing that's really important, I think, for all students, all young people to understand is they need that social capital. They need that connection um, that's not just applying blindly to a LinkedIn posting to, to actually get going in the job market. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. When you talk about seeking out engagement and things that produce output, what have students been doing, or young people, I guess, in general, um, been doing during this time to get that response, um, your piece connected a bunch of sort of seemingly unrelated things, all seeking the same answer. Can you can you sketch that out a bit for us? Yeah, I found it really interesting. And again, this was uh, in part canvassing my students and looking at some of the um, 
the evidence that Wealthsimple and other uh, trading platforms were putting out there around what was happening in the stock market recently. We, we wouldn't think of young people being uh, stock market engaged necessarily, especially during a, a pandemic. And uh, some of the findings out there is that, in fact, um, th through Reddit uh, trading boards and tip boards, there are some stocks that were getting exciting uh, to, to folks for a variety of reasons, um, including maybe pushing back against the old uh, powers that be. And young people started uh, attaching onto these uh, trading platforms with the limited money they had, uh, some of them commission-free platforms. And so uh, Wealthsimple, for instance, reported that 30% of the um, people at attached to a, a recent um, set of trades um, were from uh, Generation Z. And you wouldn't think of Generation Z, that is people in the early 20s right now, to be to be trading stock. And so, no. so uh, they didn't have raw numbers, but the proportion was was remarkable. You've also had a, a renewed kind of outbreak in activist moments, in-person activist moments. So you've got all these kind of expressions where young people are um, trying to find a way to, to to show that they matter and to, and to have some impact in the world. Because the usual ways of having a degree that connects you to friends and connects you to a social life or, or where you're deeply connected in your home community, all those opportunities for connection are gone and all those opportunities to do something that gets a response are gone. Uh, I see a, a generation of people who are uh, trying to find meaning uh, in, in more unlikely places. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's incumbent on institutions, including the private sector, to, uh, to show that there, are, that, there are, that there are paths available, that they don't all have to go off and hustle and you know, show their brands off online. <laughs> that there's going, to be a, uh, there's going to be a community, there's going to be a sector, there's going to be uh, employers who are, who are waiting for them. And we have, frankly haven't seen that message yet. And we haven't seen that as a commitment by our political leaders that yes, uh, you as a generation matter, uh, that you've had it especially hard um, that we will be there for you with all the resources we have available to you, collectively, private and public. They haven't had that message. And it's part of a general, perhaps, uh, you know, substandard <laughs> response to the pandemic that we've had in Canada, where we haven't been able to uh, make uh, the right commitments to the right people, whether it's, whether it's uh, people in congregate care and long-term homes uh, or, or young people who are uh, wanting that first job and not seeing any path. What would that message uh, from government and maybe from the private sector actually look like? Because I assume here uh, that you're not talking about uh, a nicely worded speech reassuring people that they matter. Um, we're talking about something to send that message. And what form would it take and, and what kind of historical precedents are there for, for helping a, a generation like this? So it's not that there's not activity. There is activity. Governments in particular are putting lots of money into uh, – uh, job readiness programs, internships, there's money in that program I just mentioned uh, uh, with Future Majority that we got funded through a group called Seawill uh, um, that I believe has federal government uh, funding behind it. So there are programs, there's money. I think there's a lot more money on the table. There's a lot of private capital on the table that hasn't really been deployed to employing uh, young people in the proportions or the promise of employing young people in the proportions that we need. So I'm looking for a more collective message around commitments that we can measure and track that uh, private sector entities, whether at the sector level, individual business level, at the chamber of commerce level, there's lots of ways that employers can come together and say, we're not going to leave these young people behind. And in fact, we need them to help us reimagine our work because our work is going to change after this pandemic. 
So I, I think I think the message they, that that needs to be uttered is here's the number of jobs we want to create, and here's here's my commitment, here's my institutions, my employer's commitment to to the number of jobs we need to create. And then to your earlier to your the other part of your question around what have we done in the past? Um, well, in the past we've had major projects of national reimagining <laughs> based on based on um, based on young people. Uh, and we had the uh, Company of Young Canadians that was created in the 60s to go off and do uh, civic uh, projects uh, around Canada. We had Canada World Youth, which was an international placement program in the United States. They had a number uh, in, during, uh, during the Great Depression and coming out of a, a number of major civic reconstruction projects, uh, whether it was uh, uh, employing writers or artists, uh, the Conservation Corps uh, around uh, tree planting and other forms of uh, environmental remediation. We have these national project needs now. In fact, we had them during the pandemic. Uh, we had people volunteering to sign up for a, a contact tracing uh, a system that was never <laughs> deployed. We had right. uh, Volunteer Canada set up a, a portal which had 50,000, almost 50,000 people sign up to be contact tracers. And um, that never that work never happened. So we have people who are ready to step into work and we have big national projects, some of which are more public, some of which are more private. And so what I'm looking for and why I think young young recent graduates uh, deserve is an articulation of what those projects would be and some numbers attached to them. And presumably, um, they would be in all sorts of things, not necessarily uh, the graduates' field of choice, maybe, um, but allowing them to practice some of these skills. And and somebody would have to pay for it, whether that's private business or government. And I know just about every business uh, is hurting right now, and government spent billions over the past year. Can we afford this and can we afford not to do it? It seems like a, a, a paradox with the, the current conditions. Absolutely. So if you don't do it, and I'm ta- what we're, we're talking mostly right now is about young graduates who, have a, who are more, in general, more employable. People who have only graduated from high school or don't have a high school diploma and don't have a college and university uh, certification or even farther from, from some of these conversations. So we have to be really attentive uh, to that group as well. And also within this, uh, the evidence shows that younger women students are, in, are facing higher unemployment and younger racialized students are facing higher un- unemployment than uh, younger male students and younger white students. So we have to bring all those considerations to bear. Uh, if we don't do this, we risk uh, a generation that's more distant from the labor market, a, a generation that is uh, growing ever more frustrated at home longer, which creates a, a generation that doesn't get to grow up properly, that has experienced a trauma that had no lift out of that trauma, and they're going to look for more radical solutions. And those radical solutions, uh, even if they're the right ones in those young people's minds, they definitely won't be the right ones in, in, the, in the eyes of the employers who didn't step up when they needed to. Um, if you want more uh, conversation around uh, wealth taxes, if you want more converse, uh, conversation around a more, quote, socialist <laughs> approach to things, then uh, leave people out to dry now and you will get that conversation and it will not, it will not be as pretty and, and you'll have you'll have created the conditions for it by not responding to the to the very basic needs uh, that young people have. I think there's a really good public policy conversation around how much longer the massive public um, support programs need to continue. But the conversation that we're not having enough of is just how much private capital is on the table, how much private savings is on the table. Uh, in a previous piece uh, that CIBC put out an estimate of $170 billion sitting on private se- uh, private balance sheets, which is a record high. Uh, wealth accumulation uh, uh, at, at very high levels 
mostly tied up in real estate. Uh, there is a very easy, uh, but difficult for some people, way of unlocking private investment towards these needs um, by maybe delaying some of those real estate speculation and re redirecting some of that borrowing uh, towards uh, investment in young people. And it won't all pay off. So we can, if we, if we do it, there's going to be some inefficiency. There's going to be some uh, jobs that don't work out. Um, if we had a, a massive uh, youth employment program, right? But the, the the societal gains will be a lot higher than the way we're currently proceeding, which is bidding up assets on the stock market um, and, and bidding up real estate and not really generating wealth. So, what would be the actual first step in getting this ball rolling? Is it the government that needs to take the lead and and call on the private sector to work with them and and begin this program? Like, what's what's the next step on this path? Yeah, because there's been so much, in particular, federal uh, government leadership supporting incomes during the pandemic, I think th that's going to be a natural place to kind of uh, start the conversation. If it's only starting there, then it's not enough. And I think people are waiting for federal and provincial budgets to be tabled to see kind of what's on the table. <laughs> if private sector players, if individual companies are waiting to invest, they want to know, they might credibly want to know, well... Uh, what's the matching dollar here on, an, on a youth employment program? Or what's um, what's the fiscal policy of the government going to be generally that gives me confidence that I can invest the extra cash on my balance sheet or I can go into debt for some of these major um, reforms I need in my business that might involve some some more youth employment? So I, I think it's fair for the private sector to, to be um, waiting a, a bit in the wings, but they better be fast followers. Uh, a lot of our um, regulated industries in Canada are enjoying fairly comfortable profits in, in largely backstopped by federal policy. Uh, so I think there's a, a I think I think we gotta direct some of our political energy to our public uh, and elected officials a bit more to our to the private sector and uh, start to make some requests of them and again what what are their job commitments? That's a pretty it's something that I think Canadians can generally understand. Mm -hmm. How many people are you going are you going to hire uh, and when? Um, and um, you know, we, we're not seeing that in the in the amount that we need to hear that from them. Last question. You've been a policymaker. You talk to people who work in public policy. Those people uh, talk to people in government, if not work with them. What is your sense, uh, and maybe not among the top politicians, but among the bureaucracy uh, that supports them and crafts their policy, what's the appetite for something like this? We've just done a ton of huge programs in the last year to help Canadians. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's an assumption that there's a, there'll be sort of um, a reordering of the economic forces that once the uh, pandemic starts to be alleviated through vaccinations and once we can reopen the economy, the, the natural forces will alleviate the recession. There'll be more consumer spending. The government can role, the government's role can recede, and that the private sector will sort of naturally step up. That's probably one of the prevailing thoughts in some government departments and ministries. But there's another current of thoughts that'll say something like, "Well, during this pandemic, it exposed the real vulnerabilities that people had in their healthcare, the real vulnerabilities people had in terms of their personal financial situation, and it exacerbated the inequalities that already existed that we know through the uh, the relative uh, uh, wealth accumulation in the stock market versus other places. So those who had wealth did better." Uh, were able to hang on to or increase their wealth on average. And so there's going to be a competing conversation that says, well, we're going to need a policy response to this. And it can't all be through redistribution. It has to be through growth. And 
the growth isn't going to naturally just come from increased retail spending and a return to economic activity uh, as normal because we have a damaged we, we we've incurred some damage in the economy and so we need to be more intentional what i hope is that governments will not take all of the responsibility though to articulate all the things that need to be done and only use uh fiscal or monetary policy but that they really use other forms of policy and other forms of moral suasion of partnerships with um with private sector employers um so that they don't feel, so that governments don't feel it's only on them. And they need that political cover from, from Canadians to know that Canadians are going to, you know, make acts of the private sector as well as the public sector. Public sector, public policy, public spending is going to have a key role in this, but it can't be the only role. Karim, thank you so much for this discussion. And we'll check in with you maybe in six to eight months when hopefully enough people are vaccinated to get a sense of, of where employment for grads is. Okay. Thank you so much, Jordan. Kareem Bardisi of the Ryerson Leadership Lab. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn or at frequencypods. You can talk to us anytime via email, thebigstorypodcast. That's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And as always, we are in your podcast player. We would appreciate a follow, a rating, a review, some word of mouth, tell your friends. Let them know we're here every morning. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Hi there. I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.